So I really enjoy reading warning labels. And I enjoy reading warning labels because you know behind every warning label, there's a story, right? The Frankel Costume Company produces a Superman costume. And on the Superman costume, it reads, This costume does not enable flight or super strength. Now, you know the story behind this, right? There's some guy in his 30s hanging out in Doritos in his mama's basement. And he says, I'm going to do something with my life. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. And so he puts on the Frankel costume, the Superman cape, and he climbs up to the second story and he jumps out only to fall flat on his face. Of course, the ones that bother me more are the ones that I need. When I was in college, I worked in the seafood department at Winn-Dixie. And at the end of the night, we, I, one of the jobs that I was tasked with is I had to clean up all of the ice, clean out all of the ice that we used to store the fish and the shrimp and all those things. And one night, I remember my hands were just frozen solid, you know? I mean, it's probably January or February, it's 20 degrees outside, and here I am playing in the ice like an Eskimo, and my hands are just frozen, right? And so I got the bright idea. Now, I was in college at this point, okay? College. And I got the bright idea that I would warm up my hands by using the shrimp steamer. That I would just turn it on, open the door, and just put them right there and warm up my hands. Yeah. A label, a, a fool label, would have benefited me a little bit. My hands were completely, completely scalded. But you know, there, there's a lesson in that, right? That we are foolish... And our world is not foolproof, right? That we are inherently born foolish, and being foolish, we have a problem, and our problem is, is that the world is not foolproof. That if you continue living in foolishness, if you continue living as a fool, as you, if you continue living as the kind of guy that warms up his hands on a shrimp steamer, eventually, it's going to take you down eventually it's going to lead to your destruction. Eventually it's going to bring consequences into your life and it's going to lead you in the opposite direction of where you hope to be. It's going to lead your family and your children in the opposite direction of where you desire to lead them. And one day so many people have the experience of waking up years down the road and looking around and realizing that they are reaping the foolishness that they have sown over the course of their life. And that's why the Lord has given to us the book of Proverbs. The Lord has given us the book of Proverbs because we are born fools and the world is not foolproof, but He has designed it so that there is an order, so that there is a, a particular design. And if we live in alignment with the design of God, if we live in alignment with the wisdom of God, that we can flourish as the people of God. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. And when you get to Proverbs 3, if you would stand with me as we read God's Word together. We'll read the first 12 verses together. Verse 1 says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. 
bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your path. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves whom he loves as a father, the son, and whom he delights. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. I think you'll notice this morning that our text breaks up into three different descriptions or three different categories. The first four verses kind of encompass the introduction of the father, the introduction of Solomon to his son. Then verses 5 through 8 give us the body, the main idea of what he's trying to communicate to his son. And then verses 9 through 12, we see him bring application of this word into the life of his son. We see him applying this wisdom so that this son can see how this lands in his kitchen. And each from each one of those uh, sections, I want us to see a description of the wise man. The first description that we get from the introduction in the first four verses is that the wise obey God's commands because they love God's commands. The wise obey God's commands because they love God's commands. You'll notice in verse 1 he says, uh, My son, do not forget my teaching. The way the Proverbs are laid out, they come in, in couplets. And so uh, verse uh, line 2 clarifies Line 1. And verse 2 elaborates on verse 1. And so you see that here. In verse 3, he kind of repeats himself. And he says, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. And so what he's saying here is he's saying, Son, as you take in my teachings, as you hear them, as you receive them, as you accept them, be sure that you don't leave them. Be sure that they don't leave you. Be sure that you don't depart from them or forsake them. See, what Solomon is communicating to his son is that the wise have a conscience that is in the shape of wisdom. The wise have a conscience that is in the shape of wisdom. That, that what we understand, and the Puritans write about this in, in great detail, is that when our conscience is conformed to the character of God, and our conscience is forged by the desires of God and the commandments of God and the Word of God. As we sanctify our conscience and we sanctify our impulses and we sanctify our reflexes and we sanctify the thought processes that we have and the differences between right and wrong and wise and foolish, that we take our conscience with us everywhere that we go. And so the idea is to have your conscience so formed into the shape of wisdom that you can't leave it behind. You can't set it down. You can't come into a decision and in the moment of that decision set aside what the Lord would have you to do because it's a part of who you are. It's a part of the way that you see the world. It's a part of your, your ethical worldview that God has so forged your, your conscience, that your conscience has been so under the, the influence of the Holy Spirit, so, so fashioned by the Word of God and by your delight in the Word of God that you begin to see the world through God's eyes. You begin to make the decision 
from God's perspective. That you you have a, a, a negative reaction to those things that God has a negative reaction to and a positive reaction to those things that God has a positive reaction because your conscience over the course of your life is formed into the shape of wisdom. Now you understand that we're not born that way. That we're not born that way. That as an unbeliever, as a new Christian, as you're growing, your conscience will crush you. Your conscience will deceive you. But over the course of the Christian life, as you pursue Christ, then that Holy Spirit begins to, to form and to shape your decision making and form and shape the way you understand questions and the way you answer dilemmas and the way you make decisions so that your conscience is ultimately in the shape of the wisdom of God. You know, in our lives, there's often times when we want to go against Solomon's advice here with there, there are often times in our lives that we want to forget wisdom, isn't there? We, we come to a situation and we want to forget what is wise when there's a new boat, when there's a new car, when there's a new phone, when there's a new house that we want to buy and we know that it's unwise. We want to set wisdom down and move on and do what we want to do. We want to forget the wisdom of God in terms of our sexuality. When there is another opportunity that we want to turn on our computer screen. When there's a, when there's a relationship that we want to take the next step. We, we want to set aside the wisdom that we have. We want to set aside the wisdom of God so that ultimately we can do that which we desire to do. We want to set aside the wisdom of self-control when we want to take one more bite, take one more drink, react in a way that says exactly what's in our mind without any type of filter. We want to set aside wisdom when we're angry and we just want to be angry. When we're bitter and we just want to be bitter. We want to set aside the wisdom of forgiveness. We want to set aside the wisdom of mercy. We want to set aside the wisdom of grace so that we can go full in on vengeance and vindication. That we come into our lives and being naturally foolish, having the, the, the nature of the flesh, there are times in our lives in which what is wise doesn't feel good to us and so we want to set aside and forsake steadfast love and faithfulness. Forsake wisdom and insight and understanding and do just flat out what we want to do. But what Solomon is teaching his son, what God is calling us to as his people, is that wise people refuse to forget. Wise people refuse, even when they don't feel like it, even when they aren't excited about it, wise people refuse to set aside wisdom. Wise people refuse to set aside the desires of the Lord. Wise people refuse to set aside the passions of God and the perspectives of God and the insights of God. Even when they don't feel like it, even when they are, they are inclined towards something else, even when their impulse is different from the wisdom of God, wise people refuse to forget. This morning, I wonder what it is that you're trying to forget, where you're trying to forget wisdom. I wonder where in your life you're wanting to set aside wisdom. Is it in your marriage? Is it, is it in your parenting? It is, is it in your job? Is it in the way that you spend your money? Is it the way that you react with your temper? Is it the way that you refuse and withhold forgiveness? Where in your life are you choosing to forget wisdom? 
The next thing that I want you to notice is that the wise don't just obey the Lord, don't just have a conscience in the shape of the Lord, but the wise will love obedience. The wise will love obedience. That they won't just obey, they will love obeying. You'll notice this in verse 1. He says, let your heart keep my commandments. Verse 3, he says, write them on the tablet of your heart. There is an emphasis that the idea here isn't just behavior modification. The idea in the mind of Solomon for the truly wise isn't just an outward conformity, but an inward passion, an inward compulsion. In verse 3, he talks about the steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, I want you to think about this. If if you've read through the Old Testament, those of you that that are fairly familiar with your Bibles, you'll know that throughout the wisdom literature, throughout Psalms and Proverbs, this is often used to describe the covenant love of God. This is the way that God loves His people. That God, even though His people are wavering, and even though they are up and down and rebellious and disobedient, God's love for them is steadfast. Even though God's people reject His covenant and go back on their responsibilities in the covenant, God is faithful to the covenant. Even though God's people back down on the promises that they make to God, God is yet faithful to uphold His promises. That God is in in alignment with His design and in alignment with His word and in alignment with righteousness regardless of what the other party says. And what the Father is telling the Son, what Solomon is telling his boys, what the Lord is telling us as his people, is that we are to love God, and we are to pursue wisdom, and we are to walk in obedience in a way that is like-minded with God, in a way that reflects God's steadfast love, in a way that that reflects God's faithfulness, that regardless of what is happening in our lives, regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in, regardless of what we feel and what our impulses are, that we desire that we are going to walk in steadfast love and faithfulness to the Lord, that we are going to be resolute and persevere in wisdom, that we are going to walk in wisdom in a way that is outward conformity, not a result of outward compulsion. That's how we typically think of conformity, isn't it? That's how we typically think of obedience. We typically say, okay, I really want to be on my phone at work, but I know that my boss is going to flip over the tables if he walks in and sees me on my phone, so I'm going to be outwardly conformed to the rules even though inwardly I desire something completely different. We, you you uh, may not want to come home in time for curfew, right? Like a lot of teenagers, like your parents set a curfew, and they say, all right, all right, Johnny, you got to be home by this time. And Johnny's like, God, if I could just stretch it 10 minutes, man. That's just 10 minutes. But you get home by curfew, why? Because you don't want to listen to dad lecture again. Because you don't want to face the wrath of mom and dad and the, and the restriction that will come and the consequences that will bring it. So, so there's an inward desire for you to do something else. But there's outward conformity because of outward compulsion. But the obedience of the wise is profoundly more beautiful than that. The obedience of the wise man or woman of God is profoundly more beautiful than that. That is, that outward conformity in the life of the wise is to the wisdom of God because and as a result of inward conformity to the character of God. That in the life of the Christian, that we obey because we desire obedience. 
We obey because the Holy Spirit is sanctifying our conscience and the Holy Spirit is writing on the tablets of our hearts the desires of God. And so in the life of the Christian, we aren't to obey because God is going to come down on us and if we don't obey. That is certainly the truth as we're going to see later on. But rather, we are to walk in obedience because inwardly our hearts have been conformed to the character of God. That we obey because we want to obey God. We obey because we love God. We want to be wise because we love wisdom. We want to bring pleasure to God. We get a glimpse of the gospel in the book of Proverbs here. That, that the Proverbs are not calling us to an outward conformity so that we can catch the eye and the ear of God. That the Proverbs are not calling us to this moralism that says, be better, do better, work harder, and then God will accept you, and then God will love you. No, what the Proverbs are calling us to is the inward transformation, the regenerate heart being fully given over to God so that the desires are different and the instincts are different and the impulses are different and the, and the outworking of the life is the result of an inward passion for God. The work and the result of the gospel. The fruit of obedience that Jesus so often talks about in his, lo- in his ministry. And so what we see is the gains of wisdom. That wisdom delivers what foolishness promises. That wisdom delivers what foolishness promises. And what does foolishness promise? Foolishness promises a better life. Foolishness promises more fun. Foolishness promises greater freedom and greater independence. Foolishness promises that you will be satisfied and find significance. Foolishness promises that you will be happy and find joy. Foolishness promises that contentment is real. And if you will just walk the path of foolishness, if you will just indulge your impulses, if you will just put down all of your restraints and run after all the things that you want and all the things that you desire, if you will just go into sin city and into the sin world and live as all the things that they do and go after all the trappings that they offer, then, then you can have some fun then you can know what is real. See, he promises though, verse 1, but let your commandments, let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. The word peace there, that's the word, that's probably a Hebrew word that most of you have heard before or are somewhat familiar with. It's the word shalom. The word shalom. It's not talking about you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm riding through a, a breezy fall afternoon and I just feel, I feel, you know, a temporary joy that kind of passes through with the weather. It's talking about a holistic well-being of the person. It's talking about somebody who mind, body, and spirit are in total alignment so that you know that you are within the will of God and within the provision of God and within the protection of God. It is to know that you are functioning in accordance with your design, that you are functioning in accordance with the way that God has engineered you so that mind, body, and spirit, you are well, you are at peace, you, are, you have found joy, you have found those things that the world promises to you. Just by this, then you will be satisfied 
If you just experience this, then, then you will know what it's like to really be alive. If you will just go with her, if you'll just do that with him, if you'll just, just make this decision, then, then you can know what it is to be peace. But what does he say? He says, no, no. If you will obey in steadfast love and faithfulness, then I will add to the days of your life. Your life will be longer and your life will be fuller. Verse 4, he talks about, he, he elaborates on this, and he talks about that, that you'll be, you will uh, be honorable in the eyes of God and honorable in the eyes of man. That the two great relationships, the two fundamental relationships of every human being will be benefited because of the wisdom that you experience. But this is not what the world says. Foolishness promises you that if you will just get outside of the fence... If you will just climb out of the window of your father's house, if you will just assert some independence and indulge some impulses, if you will just do those things that you want to do that you know are contradictory to the word of God, then, then you will experience freedom. Then you will experience happiness. Then you will be exhilarated. But every single one of you that have lived past the age of 15, what you've learned over the course of your life, whether you've applied the lesson or not, is that foolishness is a liar. And that foolishness always breaks its promises. That foolishness pr promises you that happiness is with this girl, happiness is in this job, happiness is in this salary, happiness is in this purchase, and every single time you experience, you get to the other side, and you're still empty. You see, wisdom the way of God, the design of God, being alignment with the design of God. Wisdom delivers the very things that we pursue through foolishness. Wisdom gives us the things that we desire and the things that we want. It allows us to know contentment and satisfaction and significance and purpose. It allows us to have a peace that is without understanding and a joy that is possible in all circumstances. That walking down the disciplined path of wisdom, walking in obedience to the Lord, doesn't bring restraint upon our lives. Rather, it brings freedom in our lives because we are not burdened down with the consequences of foolishness. We are not burdened down with the broken promises of foolishness. No, instead we are enjoying and thriving within the design of God Almighty. I wonder how many of you have bought the lie of foolishness. I wonder how many of you right now are pursuing the things that only God can give by a means that God is not going to bless. No, this morning, love obedience and love God and have an inward compulsion to please Him and watch as your, as your life comes into alignment and begins to flourish in a way that you've never experienced before. We get to verse 5 through verse 8. What we have there is the main point, the main thrust of what Solomon is trying to say. And from the main thrust of what he's trying to say, what he's ultimately been building up to in those first four verses, what he's been setting the context for, is that the wise trust God and distrust themselves. The wise trust God and distrust themselves. He says, lean not on, tr trust in the Lord in all His ways and lean not on your own understanding, right? It reminds me of something that Paul often said about the Christian life. Paul often in his epistles compared the Christian life to the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. 
So what Paul said is, is that as you grow in your faith, as you mature in your faith, the way that that takes place and what you should see and one of the, the evidences that should be apparent in your life is that you are constantly putting to death the desires of the flesh. You're constantly, in other words, nailing to the cross the old person, the old nature, the old you. You're nailing to the cross your greed and covetousness. You're nailing to the cross your desire for sexual immorality. You're, you're nailing to the cross the, the envy and the anger and the malice and the gossip. You're taking the old nature. You're taking the old desires of foolishness and you're putting them to death. But as you nail them to the cross, at the very same time, you are raising to life. You are resurrecting in your life the, the fruits of the Spirit. You're raising in your life peace and joy and contentment. You're raising in your life love and passion and genuine desire to help other people and walk in conformity to God. That you're, you're putting to death and you're raising to life. That as you walk down the path of, of the Christian life and you're maturing and you're growing, that there's this constant nailing to the cross and at the same time resurrecting those things which honor the Lord. And that's what we see here. When he says, lean not on your own understanding, what is he telling us to do? He's saying to put to death our self-realized wisdom. The wise always put to death their self-realized wisdom. That is, that desire that we have in us to be independently wise. That desire that we have in us to know the right thing to do just because we're us. That desire that we have in us to be strong enough and smart enough so that at the end of our life we can look back and say, look at the life I've built. Look at how well I've done. Look at how well my family has done. Look how happy my marriage is. Look how successful my career has been. Look at how I have built my life and so that everyone will take an audience and acknowledge your own wisdom. You see, independence is the original sin, right? Independence is the original sin. Why is it that Satan was cast out of heaven? Satan is cast out of heaven because Satan wants to have a glory that is independent of God. He wants to have a, a praise that is independent of God. He wants to have a standing that is independent of God. Why did Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It's because they wanted to have the knowledge of God independent of God. They wanted to have the wisdom of God without having to submit to God and come under the leadership of God. Brothers and sisters, we must put to death the desire in our lives to be smart enough, good enough, to be independent of God in our decision making and independent of God in the formulating of our opinions. The greatest obstacle that every single one of us has to being truly wise is our own self-realized wisdom. See, there's a temptation here. For all of us who study the Proverbs and for all of us who pursue true wisdom, for all of us who pursue to walk down the narrow path of righteousness, that we can get to a place in our lives where we believe that we are wise enough. Where we believe that our wisdom is sufficient where we believe we have enough answers, where we can say, I have finally got all the things that I needed. Everyone should listen to me. Everyone should follow me. Everyone should just acknowledge me. How can you know if you're there? Are you still pursuing God like you used to? Are you still going into God's Word and studying God's Word like you were when you were a young Christian? 
Are you still memorizing the scriptures and pursuing the disciplines in your life like you did originally in your life? Or with your actions, are you saying, I am wise enough? But see, the wise, they put to death their self-realized wisdom while at the same time they raise to life the wisdom of God. They raise to life the wisdom of God. He says in verse 5, trust in the Lord. Then he says, in all your ways, acknowledge Him. In other words, those who are wise, those who walk down the path of wisdom are those who are always and continually going and saying, Lord, I don't want to do what makes sense to me. I don't want to lean on my own understanding. I don't want to formulate my opinions separate from you. No, Lord, let me raise to life in my own life your wisdom. Let me cultivate in my life your word and your gospel so that I can know how the gospel applies to every arena of my life, my finances, my politics, my my parenting, my marriage, so that I can cultivate in my life a passion for you that is in alignment with you and be able to see the world from your perspective so that I can then obey you because I love obedience, so that I can be wise because I love wisdom. You see, the wise, the wise don't compartmentalize their lives. You'll notice there's, a, there's an allness of wisdom here, right? He talks about all your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And when he gets to the application, and he's talking about our money, he says, with, with, with it, honor the Lord with all your produce. That is that there's not a single corner of your life. There's not a single decision in your life. There's not a, a, an area of your life that you can keep for yourself and give the rest of it to the Lord. That the wise realize that their lives are connected. And the wise realize that their lives are not compartmentalized that way. That they can't keep for themselves uh, their career while offering their marriage and their children up to the Lord. They can't keep for themselves their money while offering their time up to the Lord. They can't keep for themselves their hobbies while offering up their, their salvation to the Lord. We can't say, oh God, would you save me for the next life, but leave this life alone. The wise realize that life in the eyes of a sovereign God cannot be compartmentalized. No, all of it must be brought in submission to Him. All of it must be offered to Him. There is an allness to life, and whether it is sex or money or ambition or parenting or high school or college or whatever you're facing in your life, if you know the Lord, if you genuinely want wisdom and to honor the Lord and to be blessed by the Lord, you will offer it all to the Lord. All to the Lord. All of your decisions, all of your heart, all of your ways, all of your finances, all of your produce, all of it will be offered to the Lord. And it comes, it comes with such a wonderful word for us. That if you're willing to do that, and can we just acknowledge that takes guts? It takes guts. If, if our high schoolers are going to offer all of their ways to the Lord in the midst of a high school that is pushing the opposite direction, it's going to take guts. If, if our daddies are going to take God with them to work, it's going to take guts. If our mamas will learn and offer their babies to God every morning and their parenting to God every morning, it's going to take guts. Oh, brothers and sisters, it comes with an encouraging word. 
Solomon encourages his son and he says, and he will make straight your paths. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. That is that if you will take all the areas of your life, all of the decisions of your life, all of the opinions of your life, and you will offer them up to the Lord, that the Lord will straighten out and smooth out your paths. Now that doesn't mean that your life is going to be easier. That doesn't mean that your life is going to be pain-free. We live in a broken world, y'all. We live in a, in a season of pain, this side of Jesus' return. We live in a time in which tears are going to come, but do you know what it means? It means that if, if you zone out, not necessarily in the, in the here and the now, in the pain that you're facing and the unhealth that you're facing and the difficulties that you're facing, but if you will zoom out from the bird's eye perspective, from the perspective of God, that you will be able to see in your life that there is an upward trend toward godliness and an upward trend toward goodness and an upward trend toward holiness and an upward trend toward peace and an upward trend toward joy, that you will see a straight line in your life. Sure, there's going to be dips, there's going to be pain, there's going to be tears, but the trajectory of your life in the perspective of God, in the big picture of life, will move to the Lord. So that like Joseph, you can say, that which was intended for evil, God used it for good. So that like Job, you can say, before my ears had heard of the Lord, but now my eyes have seen the Lord. So that with Paul from prison, you can write, I count it all joy to share in the sufferings of my Lord. So that from the big picture, you can agree with what he says when he says, all things will work together for the good of those who love God. He will smooth out your paths and straighten out your paths so that even the bumps are used for his glory. But there is an application in the here and now. I think, I think we would be remiss if we, if we didn't acknowledge that there is a truth that our paths will be smoother now. They won't be completely smooth, but they will be smoother. They won't be completely straight, but they will be straighter. How many of the bumps in your life, how many of the scars in your life, how many of the consequences in your life are the result of you leaning on your own understanding? Think back. How many of the, of the bumps in your life are the result of, of you marrying who you wanted to marry? How many of the, the scars in your life are you sleeping with who you wanted to sleep with? How many of the, the bumps in your life now financially are the result of you buying what you always wanted to buy then and leaning on your own understanding? See, brothers and sisters, it's not just that it will be good one day. It is that it can be better right now. It can be better right now. That if you will submit your life to the Lord, if you will pursue genuine wisdom in your life, in all the ways of the, God, of the Lord, and even though it pushes back on what you feel, even though sometimes it pushes back on what your natural impulses and inclinations are, even though it causes you to reformulate your opinions into the wisdom and perspective of God, your path will be straighter and your way will be smoother. In your life right now, in your life right now, where are you following after your own wisdom? Where are you leaning on your own understanding? Brothers and sisters, don't trust yourself. 
trust in the Lord. Don't have confidence in you. Have confidence in the Lord. Don't have faith in your own intelligence and your own experience. Have faith in the Lord. Walk the way of the Lord, brothers and sisters. Coming to verses 9 through 12, we see Solomon applying this to the life of his son. I tell our preachers, it's the landed in their kitchen, man. So that's what we see in Solomon. And so he's teaching his son finally that the wise desire God more than they desire comfort. The wise desire God more than they desire comfort. And he talks about the two subjects that are the testiest. He talks about the the two subjects that are the most sensitive. Our money and our suffering. Our money and our suffering. That if there are are two subjects in the world that are going to test our confidence in the Lord, that are going to test our trust in the Lord, that are going to test our faith in the Lord, it is going to be our money and it is going to be our suffering. And he says in both cases that they are to be offered up to the Lord because you want the Lord more than you want what makes sense. You want the Lord more than you want what's comfortable. First, in verse uh, verse 9, he says, I'm sorry, in, uh, I was looking up chapter 2. Verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. You know, if there is any area of our life that we are tempted to compartmentalize, it is our money. If there is any area of our life that we are to say, God, you get everything in my life except this one, it's our money. Because there is nothing more tied to our security. Nothing more tied to our affluence. Nothing more tied to our identity. No, nothing more tied to our ambition. Nothing more tied to our definition of success than our money. And so it is so easy for us to check out when we hear money because money is the one area that I say, I'm going to have to hold on to that one, Lord. See, money tests our affections and gives us the temperature of our hearts. Money tells us what we believe about ourselves and what we really believe about our Lord. It boils down to whether or not we're going to trust God or we're going to trust what's in our hand. We're going to trust God or we're going to trust what's in our savings account. Are we who God says we are or are we what our salary says that we are? Are we what God has made us to be or are we what our retirement fund says that we are? Who are we? Are we going to trust in the Lord or are we going to trust what's in your hand? Your wealth is perhaps the greatest litmus test of your faith. And if you find yourself holding back and you find yourself compartmentalizing, and you find yourself unwilling to meet the needs of others and support the ministries of your church and advance the glory of God with your money, it is with you saying, God, I just don't trust you with that yet. God, I just don't believe in you with that yet. But Solomon comes to his son and he says, don't just honor the Lord with your wealth. Honor the Lord with the best of your wealth. Honor the Lord with your first fruits. In other words, honor the Lord with that which you have in your hand now. Honor your Lord in the most secure part of your harvest. Honor the Lord in that part that comes in first with the 
faith that the Lord is going to bring in the rest of the harvest. Take the first, take the best, offer it up to the Lord, and then entrust it to the Lord that he will bless it with the rest. Brothers and sisters, what does your money say about your trust in the Lord? Do you want God more than you want comfort? Do you want God more than you want an affluent retirement? Do you want God more than you want to have extra? Do you want God more than you want money? It's as simple as that, brothers and sisters. The second litmus test that he gives us is the litmus test of suffering. Verses 11 and 12, he says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. If money is the area in which we are most tempted to compartmentalize our lives, suffering is the area in which we are most tempted to distrust God in our lives. When we walk through a season and we have more questions than answers, when we walk through a season and we have more tears than we have laughs, more, more suffering than we have joy, it's easy for us to look up to the Lord. And, and brothers and sisters, I'm speaking from my own experience. To look up to the Lord and say, Lord, why me? Do you not love me? Do you not have my back? Are you not going to protect me? Are you not going to sustain me? It's easy, oh brothers and sisters, to look on Facebook and see everybody else's smiling pictures and the portrayal of who you want them to believe and to have envy and jealousy in your heart that they are happy and you are not, that they have it easy and you have it difficult. And to look at the Lord and say, God, how dare you bring this into my life? See, there's a question of trust there. There's a question of trust there. For Solomon roots the Lord's discipline. Solomon roots the saints' suffering in the love of God. Not in the meanness of God. Not in the harshness of God. But in the love of God. See, in his mind here is the concept of discipline. It's on one hand the type of discipline that Paul talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that says uh, to train yourself for godliness, to, to hold your body in check and to pursue the ways of the Lord and to resist and to, to bring your whole self into submission to God. And on the other hand, it has in mind the reproof of God, the painful discipline of God in which you get out of alignment with the design of God. You get out of alignment with, with the will of God and the Lord corrects you and brings you back into His will because that's what's best for you. And He says, the reason that this is true is because you are not illegitimate sons. You are not illegitimate daughters. No, you are really his son. And he is really your father. You are really his daughter. And he is really your dad. That, and because he is your father and because he is your dad, he will bring discipline into your life because that is what's best for you. That is the means to greater joy. That is the means for greater flourishing. That is the means for greater delight. That is the means for greater pleasure in the Lord. Now, I often hear it said, I'm not going to pray for patience. I'm not going to pray for patience because I don't want to experience the pain that might have to be brought into my life so that I can be patient. And what we are saying, brothers and sisters, when we will not pray for patience is that I would rather be comfortable than be like Jesus. 
C.S. Lewis wrote about this. And C.S. Lewis said that when we wish for God to make our lives easier and we wish for God to not discipline us, that we are wishing not for more love, but for less. And I wonder how many of us call out to the God with our decisions, call out to our Lord with our ways, call out to the Lord with our prayers, call out to the Lord in our decision making and say, God, would you please love me less? I want comfort, not you. I want comfort, not glory. I want comfort, not godliness. I want comfort, not wisdom. Just make me comfortable now. And whoever happens, whatever happens, I'm good with that. Brothers and sisters, this morning, do you want more of God? Or do you want more of comfort? Do you want more of wisdom? Or do you want more of leisure? Do you want God to love you more or God to love you less? Let's pray together.